Well, this is the fourth week of our series, Explore God. It's been incredible, unprecedented, over 52 churches spread out through 16 cities in the triangle doing the same series at the same time. This week we're addressing the topic, is the Bible reliable? But I won't be at Hope. I'm actually going to be across town at LifePoint Church. And Donnie Williams, the pastor at LifePoint, is going to be here with us at Hope. You're going to love Donnie. He's been a part of LifePoint Church since 2004. It was a church plant that's now grown to three campuses, one in Raleigh, one in Cary, one in Wake Forest. He's married to Cinda. He has two girls that are in college, Molly and Abby. Uh, He's more of a man than I am because Cinda let him have a motorcycle. So already I put him up on a pedestal. And because of his ADD, he says, just like me, every day's a new adventure. You're really in for a treat this weekend. Would you give a warm hope welcome? to Pastor Donnie Williams. Well, good morning. Good morning. You know, I listened to that video. I know why Mike really wants to be friends with me. He wants to figure out how I got a motorcycle. (laughs) But this truly is a historic time in our city with over 50 churches doing the same series. And you know what that says to our city? It says we are one. It says we're all on the same team and it breaks down walls so those who are far from God can look at the church and say, maybe there's something there. Because if they can all do this together, maybe there's something there I never saw before. So we're praying that big things come from this series. You know, it's an honor to get to be here and for Mike to be up at LifePoint today. My experience with Hope goes way back. When I first started leading our church, I took a few weeks off and I said, I'm going to go visit some churches. And this church was meeting in the gym of the school next door. And I came and I listened and I copied as much as I could to go and help our church move forward. So this is a pace setting church for all of those who came after to plant churches in our area that's going to reach people who are far from God. Well, today, Mike and I realized just a few weeks ago that we gave each other the most difficult, hard-to-research, hard-to-deliver topic of this entire series. So before we get started on that, let's pray and ask God to be with us. God, as we open up your word today and we talk about the words in there and we talk about your, your book that's been handed down from generation to generation, Father, may you speak to us. May you be in this room. May we feel your presence as we look at this book that's had such an influence on our world and on many of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So when our now college-age daughters were little, they wanted a dog, and so we go out and we buy this little white fluffy dog that I actually started to love. And one day Daisy got out of her cage and she was dragging her back legs behind her. And we scooped her up and we rushed her to the vet and they said, this is something serious. So we take her to the NC State vet school and she's there for four days and they're evaluating what's wrong with her. And one day I get a call in my office and my wife says, hey, you got to go by. They know what's wrong with Daisy and they want to talk to you about what they want to do. I said, great. And I go and I sit in the consultation room. The vet comes in and, and he said, look, it's serious what's wrong with your dog. She has a tumor on her spine and that's causing her to be paralyzed and we're going to operate we can do this surgery we can remove the tumor if she survives the surgery which is a big if she'll probably be paralyzed but no worries he said we can fit her for a doggy wheelchair and we can teach you how to expel her bladder a couple times a day and some other really gross stuff and I was like all right I love this dog I love my kids what's that going to cost four thousand dollars That's how it sounded in the room. It was dead silent. And I said, excuse me one minute. 
I walk outside, I call my wife, she's excited. First thing she says is, how's Daisy? And I said, honey, she's not gonna make it. <laughs> and so I had to be there with Daisy at this last moment. And it was a traumatic experience for me. I cried more than anybody else. And I said, I've got to go tell my kids who love this little dog. I've got to go tell them about this. And so they gave me this book. It's about where dogs go when they die. And it talks about a rainbow bridge and meadows and, and, and bunnies and butterflies and them frolicking across fields with other dogs who are there. And I sit down in front of the fireplace and I deliver the news to our girls. They immediately start crying, our oldest especially. She's seven years old and I said, but honey, look, look, this is where Daisy is. This is what she's doing and it's not working. And I'm just turning the page and I'm trying to tell her. And she looks at me through her tear-filled eyes and she says, Dad, is that true? Like, is, that, is that real? You know, a lot of people have that same question about the Bible. They see us who believe in it, who read it, who say we base our lives upon it, and they say, is that really true? Are the stories in there really true? Because our culture really doubts it. If you believe those words are true, you are in the minority. In fact, just this week, GQ had an article entitled, 21 Books You Don't Have to Read. And the Bible was one of those books. And here's some of the words they said. Yeah, there's some good parts, but it's also repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times, ill-intentioned. And yet the Bible continues to be the best-selling book of all time, year after year. The Bible also continues to be the most shoplifted book. Isn't that weird? Of all time. <laughs> so is it popular? Yes, it's popular. Is it loved by people of faith and revered for generations for those who follow Jesus? Yes. But is it reliable? When we read the words in here, are they reliable words? Are they words that we can count on? and apply to our lives. You read the big stories like God opening the ocean so his people can walk through on dry ground to safety. Miracles, Jesus raising people from the dead, healing blind people, a guy that gets swallowed by a big fish and is in there for three days and lives to tell about it. That kind of sounds like Pinocchio. So, of course, people are going to have questions when the Bible makes such huge claims. And if you have those questions, those are legitimate questions to have about this book. So there's two groups of people in this room. One group would be a group of skeptics. You are here, maybe somebody brought you here, but you're thinking, I'm not sure about this. Maybe all the questions that we've addressed, you're just not sure and you're skeptical. Well, if that's you, I wanna encourage you. I wanna challenge you to listen, to take some notes, to do some research on your own specifically about this question. Because you can ask no question too great for God to answer. Now, there's another group of people in this room, and that group is made up of us who believe that those words are true. Those of us who believe all the words in there. And maybe you've already answered this question in your mind. 
and you feel like, well, I already know the answer to that. I answered that a long time ago. Maybe you answered all the other questions that we're addressing in this series. But whether it's this question or one of the others that you may have already settled in your mind years ago, I guarantee you sit in class by somebody who has not. You live by someone who has not answered these questions, who's still a skeptic. You work with someone. There may be someone even in your own house who's yet to answer these questions. You know, the people who wrote down the words in the Bible, they believed that when they were writing, they were writing the very words of God. The apostle that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, his name was Paul. Paul was speaking to a young pastor named Timothy, and he told him what he believed the source of all of his words were. And this is what he says. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. He's saying all scripture is inspired by God. And that's the only place in the New Testament that word inspired is used. Many other places that are many other translations in this specific verse say all scripture is God breathed, meaning that it's coming directly from the breath of God. So the words that you have in your Bible or in your app on your phone are directly from the breath of God. It came from within God. And so when the Apostle Paul says, this is God-breathed, this is inspired, what he's saying is, this is not something I came up with, this is what God spoke through me into this book. I'm writing down the words that God wants me to write down. Another one of Jesus' close followers, one of the apostles, his name was Peter, and he said these words, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. The writers of the Bible believed the words they were writing came directly from the breath of God. Now, they didn't realize they were writing a collection of books. They didn't sit down one day and say, hey, guys, you know what we ought to do? We ought to write this bestseller. I think this could really sell. And let's put them all together, and let's try to sell them out there. It wasn't like that at all. They were just writing as they were prompted by the Holy Spirit. And yet, throughout the centuries, the Bible is a collection of 66 books the Old Testament has 39 separate books. The New Testament has 27 separate books. It's from three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It's written by over 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years across three different continents. It's written by politicians and farmers and peasants and kings and musicians and poets and apostles. And in spite of cultural differences, and great time gaps, it weaves the same story of God's relentless pursuit for the hearts of people. So is the Bible reliable? Well, if the Bible is reliable, then that means it could be something that could change my life. In 1952, 
Historian C. Sanders came up with three specific tests to use to be able to determine if, if a document was historically accurate. And these three tests are the internal test, the external test, and the bibliographic test. So the internal test is, it just says, what does the Bible say about itself? Like what we were just reading. The writers clearly believed it was from the words of God. So did they claim what they wrote was true? King David wrote these words in Psalm 119. The very essence of your words is truth. And the apostle I just read from, Peter, he said these words, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So what they're saying is, we were there, we saw it, and the words we write down about it are true. The New Testament was written between the years 47 and 95 AD. Now Jesus died in 33 AD, so what that means is, there would have been many eyewitnesses around when these books started to be written, who could have refuted all the claims and said, no, Jesus didn't exist. No, they just made that up. But that didn't happen. And maybe this will help you. A majority of the people who wrote the New Testament, they went to their death and were many of them were executed claiming that what they had seen and what they had then written about was absolutely true. So internally, the Bible claims that it's God's word and the Bible claims that it's totally from the breath of God and the writers believed it. Then there's the external test. What do outside sources say about the Bible? Are there people in history who aren't believers, who didn't believe in Jesus, or weren't followers of God, who said anything in their writings that actually confirmed that the Bible's true. And when we look at history, the Bible lines up with history. Historians have long since well established the life of Jesus. The dates and the times that are written about in the Bible match up with the historical secular calendar. There were Roman writers and Greek writers and Jewish writers that all affirmed the life of Jesus even though they didn't follow him. There's a first century historian named Josephus who wrote extensively about Jesus in the first century and his followers. He wrote about John the Baptist. He wrote about James, the brother of Jesus, and many other leaders that you read about in the first century. So the Bible does line up with history. The Bible also lines up with archaeology. Excavations of biblical locations that you read about in your Bible through the years have been found, have been uncovered, the synagogue in Capernaum, Jacob's well, the pool of Bethesda and its five porticos, the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, and many other archaeological discoveries confirm that they were actual places and those things actually happened there. In the 1940s, two young boys were chasing after one of their sheep and they thought it ran back into a cave and they threw a rock back in. They heard something shatter. They go back and they find these clay pots. In the clay pots are copies of the Old Testament. The oldest ones ever found in modern day. And when they brought those scrolls and they opened them up and they started to compare the oldest manuscripts we have with the current Bible you hold in your hand, there were no differences. So archaeology has proven that the Bible is a reliable book. Nelson Gluick, 
who's one of the greatest archaeologists of all time, said this. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted biblical reference. And then the final test is the bibliographic test. And that just says how well were the original manuscripts translated? Is what we have, is what we hold in our hand, is it accurate? When people got a hold of these original manuscripts, which we don't have any of the original, we just have copies of the original, but the way they meticulously copied the original manuscripts to ensure there were no mistakes, to ensure people weren't saying, hey, let's make Jesus say this. I think he ought to have said that. To ensure that, they transcribed everything on papyrus, it's like animal skin paper, and it had blocks all the way across the page. And each letter had to be placed in a block. And even if they had one mistake on the last letter of the last page, they had to throw the whole thing into the fire to ensure the accuracy. But still, we don't have a signed copy that says the Apostle Paul. So if we don't have that, how do we know that these manuscripts we have are even true? Well, we can compare it with other works of antiquity. So when you take other historical documents, let's see how the Bible lines up. The Gallic Wars, written by Julius Caesar in the first century. I'm sure you've all read that, right? It's by your bed, bedtime reading. The Gallic Wars, written in the first century, has the closest manuscript dated at 900 AD. That means 900 years separate the copy from the original. And there are only 10 copies of the original floating around. Aristotle wrote Ode to Poetics, somewhere between 384 and 322 BC. The closest manuscript to the original is in 1100 AD. 1,400 years separated from the original copy. And there's only 49 copies of that. Homer's Iliad was written 800 BC. Closest original manuscript is 100 AD. That means there's 900 years separating the original from the earliest manuscript. Now, it's a little bit better. There's 1,757 copies of those manuscripts. And no one would debate. I don't think GQ is going to put these books on, we're not sure if they're true. No one would debate those are historical. But when it comes to the New Testament, that was written between 50 and 95 AD, that has the closest manuscript only 50 years after the original. And there's not 10 copies, there's not 80 copies, there's not even 1,700 copies. There's over 24,000 copies of manuscripts of the New Testament. So if you compare the Bible to any other historical document, it comes out on top. All scripture is inspired by God. The scriptures are reliable. And if they are reliable, they are also relevant. Notice the rest of this passage that I read earlier. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 
So when you and I are making life decisions about what steps should I take, how can I get through this, we can find answers in here. When you want questions about my relationships are a mess, you can find answers in here. I can't get past this addiction, you can find answers in here. Am I gonna be single forever? You can find answers in here that will bring you comfort. How should I handle my money? Answers are in here. How should I handle my sexuality and my purity? Answers are in there. What about the future? Answers are in there. What about when I get off track? Well, God designed this book to help us get back on track. God's word gives me a standard for my life. Author John Piper says this, I love the Bible the way I love my eyes. I don't love my eyes because of the way they look, but I love them because of what they enable me to see. So whatever it is you're dealing with, it's in here. If the Bible is reliable and relevant, then it can, get, get, it can be, provide a guide for my life. Because you are gonna base your beliefs on something. You're gonna base them on something external. We all do. Why not base them on something and your beliefs on something that is reliable and relevant and can give you guidance? See, scriptures are designed so God can accomplish his purposes in us. And so we can find his purposes for our lives. And you may or may not believe all the stories in there, but don't miss the purpose of the scriptures because they have a specific purpose. One day in Jesus' ministry, he was being criticized by religious leaders. They were upset with him because he was healing people on their Sabbath day. And they knew the scriptures inside and out. They knew every word. They studied it from the time they were children. They could recite it. They had it memorized. And they thought they had Jesus because he was violating words that they had memorized. And here's how Jesus responded to them. In John chapter five, he said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. I can tell you all the facts about scripture. I can line it up with other historical documents. You can even agree, yeah, that that seems accurate. But the only value in what's in here is that it points you to Jesus. That's what he says. You diligently study these because you think you have eternal life through them. And Jesus said, no, these are to point you to me. You can know a lot about the Bible and not know Jesus. What we really need to internalize these words is not more facts, is not more lining it up against other historical documents, not more tests. We need faith. Because all the facts are great, but if we don't have faith to take that step, it won't matter. See, if you didn't need faith, if you could prove beyond any shadow of a doubt, 100%, no doubt, possible, what would you need faith for anyway? I have a good friend who's an atheist. We started getting together a couple years ago. He actually goes to our church. And we would meet for coffee and I would talk to him and, and the first time we met, he said, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. And he gave me all the reasons why. 
Well, the next time we met, I brought one of the most popular books that's known for converting atheists. And I was like, I got this. Like, I'm going to walk out of Starbucks on top of the world. I'm changing this guy right here. I hand him the book, and he starts reciting me lines from the book because he'd read it. And it didn't change his mind. And I was like, hey, can, can, I'm busy. Can, we, can I go? I mean, it was really uncomfortable. He knew more about the book than I did, and it didn't change his mind at all. So I thought, well, I need to take a different approach. And so as we started to meet, I realized something about this guy. He's a really good guy. I mean, I really like him. He's just a genuine, nice guy. And I asked him one day, I said, where do you think all that goodness in you comes from? He started to tear up. And we moved on in the conversation. We were starting a new small group at our house, and Cinda and I invited he and his wife to be part of that group. And we're going around the circle the first night of the group, and we're telling our story of how we came to faith and how we came to know Jesus if we knew him. And it got to him, he was last, and I was ready for him to say, I don't believe in God. And he said, I'm, I'm kind of an agnostic, I'm not sure now if there's a God or not. Inside, I'm like, yes, he took a step, he's taking a step of faith. And I was just, I sat there calmly, thinking God is working in this man's life. He still hasn't followed Christ, but he took a step. And there's people in your life all it takes is you following Jesus for maybe them to take one little step. And I continue to pray for him and know that his life's gonna be changed one day. And he'll take that step of faith. Because as I've told him many times, look, I, I can continue to give you facts, but at the end of the day, you're gonna have to take a step of faith. Faith that what's in this book points you to Jesus. And that's all you really need to know. I have this Bible that's one of my most prized possessions. It was purchased by my grandfather in April of 1939. He started following Jesus and he wanted a Bible. And he grew up dirt poor in the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia. He went to his mom and he said, Mom, I want a Bible. And she sold something that they had to make a down payment on this Bible. And then he financed it. And he paid for it over time, just a dollar or two a month. But he studied these words. And these words led him deeper into a relationship with Christ. And best we can all count in our family, he probably planted 30 or 40 churches. One of those that my mother still goes to in a little town in West Virginia where I grew up. Not because... He knew this book inside and out, because he did. But because the words in here led him to a Jesus that he could not help but share with other people. That's the value of God's word. If it's reliable, then it's relevant. So why don't we read it more? Why don't I read it more? I'm a pastor, for goodness sakes. Why am I not reading his word more? Did you know it would only take the average person 30 minutes a day to read through the entire New Testament in a month? At the same time, the average person, look out, watches four hours of TV a day. That's 120 hours a month. Seven and a half times the amount of time it would take to read the New Testament. So you could read the New Testament in one month and still have 105 hours left over to catch up on This Is Us or Blacklist or, or whatever it is that you watch. 
And we hold those words right here. See, not everyone in the world has the same access we have. We have unprecedented access to God's word. It's probably in most of your pockets on your phone. And if it's not, you could have the app in about three seconds. But not everybody has the access to the words that point to Jesus that we do. Take a look at this video. This book is our greatest need, she said. They need it and don't have it. We have it and we don't read it. You know, as a pastor, my number one concern is not that people believe every word in this book. My number one concern is that people believe in Jesus. We live in a time that just saying, hey, the Bible says so, so that's it, it's settled. We live in a time that doesn't believe that anymore. But we live in a time that needs Jesus more than ever. And my concern for people is that they read these words for the purpose of leading them to Jesus. So are the words in here true? Well, I believe they are. Do I understand all of them? I don't. But this challenges me. Just preparing for this message challenges me to read it more. Because those words in there point me closer and closer to Jesus. So I want to challenge you. As we wrap up today, challenge you to read this. You may not believe all the stories. It may seem outlandish to you at times. But continue to read especially the words of Christ that reveal his nature that reveal his desire for you, that reveal his love for you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what. And Jesus will meet you right where you are. Let these words speak to you, minister to you, and point you closer to Jesus. Let's pray. God, will always have questions. And Father, we think it would be easier if we just had a signed copy from you of the Bible. But God, we want to grow our faith. And so many of us have decided that we believe. We believe these words are true, although we don't understand them all. And we want to be convicted to read them more and to bring them deeper into our lives. And God, I pray for the skeptic that's in this room today. I pray they heard something that makes them dig a little deeper and get closer to taking that big step of faith. I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.